His name was Senhor Pindá. He lived back in the interior town of Brazil. He was the only believer in this town that my parents went to and had been praying for years that God would send a missionary. Senhor Pindá lived outside the town in a mud hut with his three children and his wife. He was a, a man that at my age, I thought he looked at least 90 years old. He probably was in his 50s. <laughs> Skinny as a rail. Whenever he drank Kool-Aid, he looked like a thermometer. <laughs> One morning, my father told me, he says, you're going to have to go down to the market and get the meat. Now, that meant that uh, the, they would butcher the cow, bring her in, cut her in half, stick her on the, on the hooks, and you would point to whatever section of meat you wanted. They'd cut a hunk of meat off and put a, a piece of canauba through it, and you would carry it home. And um, so, and you had to get there quickly because if you didn't get there right as soon as they brought it in, the flies would invade the, the meat and it became rather uh, distasteful. <laughs> so at this point, we lived about, uh, about six, mile, uh, six blocks from the marketplace. So I'm about 10 years old. I go down there. I've, I've done this before, so it's not a big deal. When I get to the marketplace, the place is just crawling with people, screaming and hollering, and I wonder, what in the world? And uh, they're all pointing in a direction and, and yelling different things at, at the, in that direction. So I wormed my way through, and to my horror, I saw a man by the name of Cambraia that had Siopinda by the neck, holding him up so his feet were dangling, and in his other hand, he had a knife, slowly pushing it into Siopinda's stomach. And he said, you either deny Protestantism and deny Jesus and come back to the Holy Roman Catholic Church, or I'm going to put this knife completely in your stomach. I didn't know what to do, but I did know one thing. Whenever you had a problem, you went to your dad. So I ran back as fast as my 10-year-old legs could carry me. And I got home, and when I was young, when I would get panicky, I couldn't speak. <laughs> you know. And my father said, just calm down, calm down. What's going on? I said, uh, Cambrai has Pindan, and he's going to kill him. My father said, what? So then I calmed down enough to tell him what happened. He says, let's go. We jumped in the pickup truck and went down there, and sure enough, by this time, the knife was probably about two inches into his stomach. Blood was running down his, his side. I watched my father. I didn't know what he was going to do. Uh, my father, as I've told you before, he was just a, a little guy. He weighed maybe, maybe 120 pounds. He was uh, five foot seven and a half. Uh, he always made sure that we included that half. He was um, in World War II. He started off as a ranger and then busted his leg up and ended up fighting under Patton. But um, he was, um, I guess, pretty good at killing people. I, I never saw him do it. <laughs> but I remember him going up to this guy and said, drop him now. 
And the guy looked at him and he said, yeah, and who's going to make me? He said, I am. He said, who are you? He says, I'm an American and you've never gotten a whooping from an American. <laughs> you know, there's something about a preacher with boldness that the devil can't withstand. And he put Pindad down. I go, Whew. We took Pindad into the doctors to have him sewed up. As the doctor preparing to sew him up, the doctor said, I don't get it, Pindad. Why didn't you just deny Jesus? I'll never forget. Pindad said, because he's precious to me. In John 12, we have, and don't turn you by, that's not my text yet. I'll get to it eventually. Jesus is preparing to go to Calvary. And he's at a supper party. And Mary comes and opens a pound of ointment, of spikenard, and pours it on his feet. Why? Because Jesus was precious to her. The central theme of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, he's looked forward to. In the New Testament, he's living reality. And today, he remains living reality through you and me. The other two members of the Trinity tell us to praise his name. The Father said, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. The Holy Spirit comes to prepare the bride for Jesus. In John 16, 14, he says, he will glorify me. The truth is, we often take Jesus for granted. And perhaps Bible College campus is one of the most dangerous places to have that happen. I was all 17 years old and I hit my, my, uh, my first year of college. I had, uh, my father was a missionary, my two uncles were preachers, and all three of them had decided that they were going to see me off. And they came to the school and they were talking, and one of my uncles hands me a tie. I didn't have a tie, and I didn't realize you had to wear a tie to class. Uh, you know, in Brazil, you don't wear ties. Uh, so he says, Bruce, be careful. He said that easiest place to backside in all the world is on the campus of this school. And I said, what do you mean? This is the porch to heaven. We're going to study the Bible. We're going to have chapel. This is going to be great. It didn't take me long to realize he was right. And I'm sure some of you found this out. I want to challenge you this morning to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Tomorrow, we have Valentine's, and you're going to fall in love. <laughs> but I want today to talk to you about the preciousness of Jesus, and that's the title of my message, Precious Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter 2. There's a difference between seeing Jesus as precious and loving Jesus. Loving Jesus comes as an emotional response. Seeing Jesus as precious comes as a decision of the will. 
I make a choice to decide he's precious. And let me tell you, if you decide he's precious, then everything about him and connected to him becomes precious. This word becomes precious because it's his words. The, the, the fact that you are here in this school becomes precious. Your Christian life becomes precious because Jesus is precious. I, um, I like antiques, certain kinds of antiques. I guess maybe I like antiques because sometimes I feel like an antique. But uh, when you find, when you hold something that they tell you is 400 years old, you pick it up and it looks like junk, and then you find out it's 400 years old. Wow. All of a sudden, it becomes precious because it has value. And part of the reason why we don't consider Jesus precious is because we don't understand the value. We just take him for granted. You understand it's possible to love him and not, not value him, not make him precious. You follow along as I read beginning of verse 1 of 1 Peter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Doom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Three times in this short passage, the word precious appears. He is precious to God. He is precious to the church. He is precious to the believer. Let's take a look at precious to God in verse 4. It says, to whom coming as unto a lively stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious. He's precious because he is the Son of God. You all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His only begotten Son. Years ago, I was, I don't remember, maybe sixth grade, and Dr. Artie Ketchum was preaching the, the conference in our particular town in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, I did not go, but my father came back uh, after a week of meetings and three meetings every day. Dr. Ketchum preached three times uh, a day for five days. And I asked my father, I said, well, what did he preach on? He said, one verse. He spent all week on John 3.16. But he said, you know, when he came to the word son, I began to understand just a little bit of the heart of God 
that he the Father would give his son to come to earth to be maltreated and ultimately crucified. God said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. He's precious because he's chosen for a mission. It, it, it makes it very clear. He's chosen of God. In Revelation 13, 8, we read, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are now written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible doesn't tell us what happens prior to creation. Let me use my sanctified imagination. The love of God is pacing the hallways of heaven, thinking about all the people that he was to create. With great love, he says, I want to bring them all to heaven to live with me. The holiness of God says, oh, you cannot do that. For they are not perfect. They are not holy as we are. The justice of God says, absolutely right. I demand payment for the sin that they will commit. The love of God knew that they were right. He paced up and down and finally he said, let me ask you a question. If I could find someone who was absolutely holy like we are, and that person were willing to give his life for theirs, holiness, would that satisfy your holiness? He said, well, yes. Justice, would that satisfy your justice? And justice said, yes. He said, it is settled. I will send my son and he will take upon him the sins of the world. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the conclusion of that. The great worship service in heaven. And as you think about this, it's, I believe, right after the rapture. And we have the courtroom or the worship center of heaven delineated for us. It's this huge lake of glass. In the center of it is sitting the throne. And one is sitting on the throne who is God himself. Back from that is the creature, the beast, full of eyes. And he's focused on the throne. Seated around that are the four and twenty elders. All of them have finished their work. They're seated. They're wearing the victor's crown. And they all are focused on the throne. And an angel comes and with a mighty voice says, Who is worthy to open the book that was held by the one seated on the throne? The Bible says that no one was worthy to open it or even to look upon it. Remember, John begins to cry. And we understand why. He understands that this is the title deed to everything. If that title deed cannot be repossessed, everything is gone. Hope is gone. And then all of a sudden, from out of the corner of his eye, he sees one like a lamb slain from the foundation of the world that comes and goes to the throne and takes the title deed. It's interesting how that 
up until that point in heaven, everyone is looking at the throne. And then all of a sudden, their eyes are taken off the throne and they look at the Lamb. And in chapter 6, he begins to open the scroll and begins to repossess the planet that he purchased back at the cross. He's precious because he was chosen for a mission. Not just because he was chosen for the mission, but he's precious because he finished the mission. John 17, 4, I've glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. What a statement. What a testimony. And I want to say to you today, listen, finish the job that God has called you to do. And right now, your job is to train for ministry. You say, but preacher, it gets hard. Yes, I know it gets hard. Yeah, but, but some of it's almost impossible. Have you ever seen Dr. Lucan's tests? <laughs> They're hard. Yes, they are. But don't quit. Finish the job. Because those who finish the job in spite of difficulty are precious to God. He glorified the Father in his obedience. He manifested the Father. He showed forth the Father in his works. On the cross in John 19, 30, when he cries out, it is finished. As he scans the Old Testament and all the prophets and all the things written about him, before he gives up the ghost, he makes sure that every detail has been finished. Because when he said it's finished, it was totally complete for time and eternity. He finished the job. Hebrews 1, 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You all know that in the scriptures when you sit down, that's a, 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 a sign of finality. Finished. Job is complete. The right hand of God was a place of exaltation according to Philippians chapter 2. So he's precious to the Father. Let me ask you a question. You interested in being precious to God? Now you are because you are a child of God. But be functionally precious. The second one, look at, look at verse, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He is precious to the church. Ephesians 2, 20-22 says, And are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed groweth together, unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded up together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. He is precious to the church because he is her Savior. He is her groom, and we're going to talk about that momentarily. But he's her cornerstone. He gives direction. 
those of you who have been involved in building buildings from ground up, you know that one of the very first things they do is they find a point, a reference point. Whether you're building with uh, stone or, or wood, whatever, you have something that's a point of reference and everything is measured from that. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He gives direction during trial times when you're not sure what to do. You go to the cornerstone to make sure that you're straight. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about this. Hell has tried to stop the church through persecution and martyrdom, but the church prevails. And the more they persecuted it, the larger it grew. There's a phenomenon. I don't understand quite what it is, and I wonder if the church in America doesn't need some persecution. I'm not asking for any, but I wonder. Back in, again, that little town of Navajusas, the church had grown, running about 200 people, and some gossip got in. You know, they were typical churches. There was only one door into that church, little church building, and there was a row of benches on one side, a row of benches on the other side. One faction would come to church because there were no other churches in town. So they had to come to this church. One faction would sit on one side, the other faction would sit on the other side, and they would not look at each other. They would not go out the door at the same time. I mean, it was really bad. And I remember my parents praying that God would do whatever it took to unify that church again. About two, three weeks later, the archdiocese sent a little Jesuit priest right out of seminary. His orders were, within six months, we want all the believers back in the Catholic Church and the Protestant missionary either dead or gone. And boy, this Jesuit tried everything he could. I thought he was going to succeed. They had my father arrested. They had just all kinds of things. We could not have a meeting, but that he wouldn't show up with a bunch of people and throwing stones and all kinds of garbage. But you know what happened? The people in the church forgot their differences and joined together. And at, after six months, not only did the 200 people come together, but we had another 100 people that got saved as a result of it. It's amazing. The same thing happens in the early church. The more they were persecuted, the more people would come and receive Christ as Savior and the church would grow. Hell tried to burn her book. But it remains in our hands today. Hell tried to pollute her doctrine. And the truth of the matter is when we look out in the, on the scenery, we can get discouraged. But I'm here to tell you the church is still alive and well. And there are churches that still have sound doctrine. Hell tried to infiltrate her. And we look at churches and say, this was what this was then, what it is now, 
is not anywhere near what it used to be. And those of us who are older do that more often probably than others. But I'm here to tell you, the church is still alive and well. And you don't measure the wellness of a church by its role or by its offerings. You measure it by their love and their joy and their peace and their relationship. And do they, is Jesus precious to them? All over the world, in cities, in villages, in deserts, in jungles, in beautiful buildings and in caves, you can hear in many different languages how amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Singing praises to the Lord. The church is alive and well because Jesus said it would be. He's precious to the church. And finally, he's precious to the believer in verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe ye is precious, but unto them that be disobedient, the stone which the builders is allowed, the same is made the head of the corner. He's precious because our past is forgiven, forgotten, it's gone. How often in counseling ministries, as we help people struggle with things that sin has done in their lives, and all of a sudden, it's, no matter how much you tell them, the Spirit of God ultimately turns the ball on. And all of a sudden, they realize they're free. That Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I'll never have to answer for my sin. Jesus did it. And you see a sigh of relief. And as though someone takes this huge weight off their shoulders. He's precious to the believer. He provides security. No matter how I get up in the morning, when I get up feeling like, and, and we've had a, a whole rash of sickness, I know that when you wake up and you're sick, you don't feel very sanctified. You just feel sick. I mean, that's just the way it is. But it doesn't make any difference how you feel. It's the fact that you are in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus, not about you. My security is based on him. And he'll be our, he'll be our groom. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. To me, is two exciting verses. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I kind of like to read between the lines and create a scenario. So travel with me to the great hallway of heaven. It's a great reception room. It is your wedding day. I've seen artists who have painted the pictures with the long, long table that extends out, out into the horizon. The table is all set with gold plates and beautiful goblets. In front of each plate, 
is a name tag, a name card. You only are the one that can sit there. It's by invitation only. Comes time to be seated and you're ushered in and you go come to the appointed place and you stand there. And all of a sudden a trumpet sounds from somewhere over in heaven and a door opens up and a light brighter than a hundred times of noonday sun shines through that. And the groom steps out. And all of a sudden, heaven becomes absolutely silent as he walks to his rightful place at the head of the table. You know who he is because he lifts his hands and motions for you to sit down. And you see the print of the nail in his hands. You look to this side and there are bleachers going up and the guests are there. They're the Old Testament saints. And there's Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. All the greats of the Old Testament. On this side, there are the guests that are martyrs from the tribulation. We don't know them personally, but we know who they are. And they have come to look at this mystery, the finality of Colossians chapter 2. And Jesus says, and it's as though he's talking right to you. From his heart to yours. And everybody else at that table, the millions that are at that table feel the same way. Personally talking. Says, I've been waiting for this moment. For centuries. It was this moment that kept me on the cross. Who for the joy that was set before me. And this is the joy. takes bread and he breaks it. And all of a sudden the Lord's Supper takes on a whole different meaning. As I understand what it cost him for me to be seated at this table. He's precious to the church. The songwriter says precious name. Oh, how sweet. One of my favorite choruses is that chorus. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. Perhaps we don't sing praises to his name enough. I don't know. But I want to challenge you this morning. Make a decision to make Jesus precious. Not just about loving him, but a decision to make him precious in your life. You are already precious to him, but he wants to be precious to you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And Father, may we here as an ambassador Baptist family make a choice to make Jesus precious.
For it's in his name I pray. Amen.